Hey, live from Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter. I'm Sean McCraney. We do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. Let's have a word of prayer. God, we uh, seek you and to know you. We want to understand you and your son by your spirit. We have mysteries all around us that we uh, contemplate. We just are seeking the truth so we can grow in our love and uh, have that be a reality in our lives. Bless those who are seeking tonight as we talk about resurrection part two. And we just pray for this. Thank you for our volunteers and people who keep the ministry running. And uh, just dedicate this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I gave it a good shot. I tried my damnedest. I really did. And I got on that Facebook and I went in, I posted things and I made really good arguments and and I put good stuff, and I came back at people who disagreed, and, and I quit today. Today was the quit day. No more disgrace book. Yes, that is what I call it. I am back to that. That is what it is. I have proven that in my own life, at least. In my own heart, I have been disgraced myself on that damn thing. And uh, so I've discovered a number of things about being part of it over the last year. It's not a place for discussion. No. It's a place for a million different posturings. Everyone postures their point and it's not really a place to learn. No one is really there to become enlightened, including me. I'm there to tell everybody what the heck they need to know and they're to tell me what the heck I need to know. And those are, you know, what's going on with that Facebook. There are a few seekers on Facebook. The Christians know what they believe. I'm one of them. The pagans know what they believe. They are them. And the, the pearls sink very fast in the mud on Facebook. You can, you can come up with a truth and it's trampled underfoot in seconds. So the other thing is my flesh comes out on that thing. That's another reason why I call it Disgracebook is because some of the things that just really are not too smart, it's to me, uh, really made evident on that thing. And I'm supposed to have love as a Christian for people who don't believe like I do. And it's really, really difficult on that. And then finally, it's a waste of a lot of valuable time. You could be doing a lot more things with your life, in my estimation. So I tried. Uh, I am disgraced. It's a disgraced book. And I will now no longer be uh, engaged with that. I haven't shut my page down, but I won't be looking at it. Uh, maybe I should go to Instagram. Just kidding. Okay. So the other thing is, if when we studied Mormonism, there is a spirit. I've always said this that sort of was brought to the forefront by Joseph Smith and sort of perpetuated by Brigham Young. That spirit the things that they were about as men and religious leaders carries forth through different events in Mormon history. Mountain Meadows Massacre was one. Uh, Elizabeth Smart was another. Ted Bundy, did you know he joined the Mormon church for a brief time and, the, and all the members rallied around him when they said that he was a murderer? <laughs> they came to his defense. They made a poster of him and it's in the Ted Bundy documentary. But there is a movie out. It's a documentary on Netflix. It's a must-see. If you want, if you've never been LDS, 
if you want to step into the mind and living room and world of a 1974 Mormon family in Pocatello, Idaho, you've got to watch this thing. You will be stunned. You will be triple stunned from the Elizabeth Smart story. Uh, it's called uh, Abduction in Plain Sight. Abduction in Plain Sight. It's on Netflix, and you're not going to believe this story, but it shows that mentality, the spirit that thrives in the, that element of Mormonism. So I just wanted to let you know about that. Now, a couple weeks ago, I came up, uh, I shared an idea with our audience. I said, you know, someone's got to come up with a system to check churches. And lo and behold, one of our dear viewers, Sarah, has done it. Checkmychurch.org. Now, it's in its infancy, but she's gone to some work to put this thing together. The layout's fantastic. Checkmychurch.org. She's got a church in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho that's in her sights that she's going to report on. She's got campus church in her sights. I can't wait to see what she has to say about us. But, you know, check that thing out. And if you have a church in your area, it says on there, do you want to be a Check My Church scout or something like that? You can contact Sarah, and if you know, live in Salt Lake, and you're attending, uh, uh, you know, the Nugget Church or across town, say, hey, I want to report on the Nugget Church. She'll tell you how to do it. Build that thing. I think it's a great idea, and I hope you'll support checkmychurch.org with Sarah. Okay, we left off last week. There's going to be some talk now, because uh, the three shows last week, today, and next week, are all about the resurrection, and this is part two. So um, we left off with Paul providing comparisons in the resurrection. He said, the resurrection of the dead, it's sown in corruption, means buried in corruption. It's raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. And then he adds, there's a natural body. This is it. This is mine. Natural body. There's a spiritual body. This is not it. This is not it. Okay? This is the major point on the resurrection. What went into the grave ain't coming out. That's the point. No matter what these crazies say, that we're waiting for that to happen, that is not what Paul says. Watch last week's show and you'll see that. So we left off reading but not discussing that last description. It's sown a natural body, meaning it's buried and it's raised a spiritual body, there is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. Let's talk about this before reading some more passages in the, in the chapter. And this part gets a little bit more complicated than last week. Last week, Paul was straightforward, but we got to talk about this natural body, spiritual body bit that he says here. So, so far, Paul has given us insight on the resurrection of the dead, and last week, we had to admit that much of what he says is incongruent with the resurrection of Jesus. Now that bothers people, but it is incongruent with the resurrection of Jesus, which was his resurrection was purposeful so the people in that day could see that Jesus was raised from the dead. That's why he kept that same body and was seen in it. So Paul told us that the resurrection of the dead requires that the former body, the natural body, dies, is buried, 
and it becomes the seed for a new plant to come up from, right? And once that body is buried, what would come out of what was buried is an altogether different body. And the example that he gave us, gives us, is a kernel of corn. It looks like that, you know, looks like a candy corn, sort of. You bury it in the ground, you water it, you see what God does. And he produces a leafy green stalk with all sorts of elements to it that have nothing to do with what was buried. That's the example Paul gives of the resurrection. What goes into that ground comes up very, very differently. Now, we know Jesus, that's not true. What went into the tomb came out exactly the same. You see? So we see differences between what Jesus' resurrection was, which was purposeful, and what ours will be. And then we were told that there'll be different glories in these bodies. That in one kernel, a body will come up that will be really glorious. and another one, a body will come out, be less glorious. And then another one, perhaps even less glorious or whatever. They are different in glories. And he told us that every body would be given according to the type that went into the grave. So a human that goes in the grave would be given a human resurrected body. I don't mean this. I mean the sphere of, human, of humans will get a certain type of heavenly body. The sphere of dogs will get a certain type of heavenly body. I'm using that as an example. I'm not sure dogs will. Uh, cats, I'm sorry, dog lovers. Birds, whatever is going to be resurrected, they're going to get the body of their species, a heavenly body. And then finally, we wrapped this run at the resurrection up with a very important differentiation that Paul gives us, which I've said, it's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. There's a natural body. There's a spiritual body. In order to properly understand what is being said here, we have to consult the Greek terms Paul uses. Now, fortunately, for those of you who kind of hang around with us, we resort to the Greek sometimes, and it's helpful. So going back to the creation of man and reading from the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, it's called the Septuagint, Moses wrote in Genesis 2, 7, And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. He formed man from the dust. That's sarks in the Greek. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That's pneumatikos in the Greek. And man became a living soul, sukakos in the Greek. Three words to describe one man composed of three different parts. Hence, we get this imagery for a trinity by, in some people's minds. Okay? So, the Greeks translated the spirit pneuma, pneumatikos, as breath, living breath. They translated uh, sukakos as mind, will, and emotion. That's how they defined what happened. So the Lord formed Adam out of the dust of the clay. He formed man. He breathed his living breath, pneuma, into that clay. And that clay became a living mind, will, and emotion. A living mind, will, and emotion. That's the creation. So man, listen, man was formed out of the dust of the ground. That is what a man is. That's what scripture says. We are dust. We are the red clay. God formed man out of the dust of the ground. Okay? 
That's our origin. That is where we came from. Now listen closely. Man is not the product of God breathing into him. Man was formed out of the dust of the ground. That was man. What happened when God breathed into man is man became a living soul. You see, man did not come, become a man when God breathed into him. Man was formed out of the clay. There's man. God says, I'll breathe into him my living breath. He does, and man becomes something different than just a man. Man becomes a living soul. So at that point, when God breathed into Adam, into his clay figure, with his living breath, Adam's mind, will, and emotion became living. And I want to suggest to you that means he was eternal. He was with God completely. Because when God gives life, it's an eternal life. Right there, at the, where there's no sin, there's nothing else. He gives him. So he became a living soul. He became an eternal being right then when God did it. Okay? Then God, unlike what appears to have happened with the beasts, because I don't think God breathed into the cattle, and I don't think he breathed into the nostrils of the snake. God breathed into man, right? He did something different. He gave man a life that the other creatures didn't have. The, the other creatures had life. They had a mind, will, and emotion. They had a body. They had a spirit, apparently. But they weren't breathed directly into by God. I would suggest that when God gives something specifically breath from him, when God breathes into something, he has the spirit of eternal life in them. All right? Anyway, it's conjecture. I can't prove that. But what's not conjecture is by breathing into the man of clay, the man became something different than just a man. He became a living soul. Prior to this, formed out of the clay, God stepped in and added a part of himself to the mix. His spirit, that's the difference. His breath, and that is how man became a living soul. All right? Uh, the, so you hopefully you have all that. Now, the first man was made a living soul by the breath of God. The order was he was created out of the dust. He was breathed into. He became a living soul. That's the origin of our first father, the federal head of the human race. But that first man, Adam, who was, the, who was first of the ground of the earth, the first made a living soul, he chose to go against God. And he chose to present or subject himself to death. He was an eternal living soul. He had everything going, his mind, will, and emotion. He had the Spirit of God in him. He was animated. He had everything. He chose to sabotage that gig. God said, Adam, in the day you eat of the tree I gave you, in the day you eat of that tree, you're surely going to die. Right? In the day. Well, Adam disobeyed. He ate of the tree. Did he die? Well, he lived to be 930 years old. So he didn't die. Well, actually, he did. Spiritually died that day. God said, you're out of here, out of the garden. There's no more relationship between us. And then progressively, his mind, his will, his emotion died and turned into corruption. And ultimately, his body died. That's the process of death. God says, in that day you eat of this, you're going to surely die. He died that day. 
There was a cutoff relationship. And man became a bipartite soul. He became a guy who had a, who had a mind, will, and emotion and who had a body, but he had no spiritual life in him. And for that reason, Jesus came to Nicodemus and says, a guy's got to be born again. If he's even going to see the kingdom of heaven, he's got to be born again, all right? So from Adam on, after the fall, we all are born into this world as bipartite beings, spiritually dead, right? We have a body, we have a mind, we have a will, we have a motion. Our mind says, you know, I think I want to bang my neighbor's wife. And our emotions say, I feel like banging my neighbor's wife. And our will says, I will bang my neighbor's wife. And our body says, I'm banging my neighbor's wife. That's the order of the natural man. We, our minds, wills, and emotions are not subject to God. We are like animals. We're no different than the cattle in the field, except we have opposable thumbs and we can build things. Uh, so you, you, you've got this fallen nature about you that you inherited from Adam. That is the fallen nature. What goes into the ground is that nature, you guys. That nature that does nothing but sin. It doesn't have a capacity to rise above that. But what he does have is the opportunity to be spiritually regenerated, and then he becomes different. He becomes a living soul again, where his mind, will, and emotion are then uh, regenerated by the Spirit, and he begins to relate to God the way Adam could have if he hadn't have sinned. All right? So... That's the natural man. That represents the natural body that Paul is talking about. It's corrupt. It's dishonorable. It's weak. That is what's planted. It dies. It bursts open. And that was all given to us by Adam, our father, our first father. So when Paul says the resurrection of man is sown a natural body, but then Paul adds a detail of, of the resurrection. He says, it's raised a spiritual body. There's a natural body. There's a spiritual body. We get clear insight that our heavenly bodies are not anything like the natural body. Okay? Um, in the resurrection, there is a body involved. We know there's a body, but it's not earthly. It's not natural. It... Uh, it it doesn't correspond to the appetites and the will and the mind and the corruption of this natural body that we're carrying around with us here. It's of another origin. It comes from heaven. It's bestowed upon you by God at that time, and it's equipped with all the necessary elements to abide in a heavenly realm that's invisible to the eyes of mortals here. It has everything necessary to, to abide there. For instance, there would be no reason for lungs, a set of lungs there. Why would there be a, a reason for a set of lungs? Why would there be a reason for a heart pumping blood? Why would there be a reason for kidneys and livers? Well, if all those things are absent, then why are we carrying around a body that has a torso that's fitted to carry a stomach, intestines, and all those things? You see, we, we say that's what it is because that's what Jesus did and we assign it to ourselves totally ignoring what Paul said. Paul gives us a completely different picture. So the body that is a natural body to fit in this natural world will be done away with 
and the spiritual body will rise up. It's of interest, great interest, that when Paul writes these terms for the natural body, the word he uses is sukakos. He says there is a sukakos and there is a pneumatikos body. There's a sukakos body and there's a pneumatikos body. The sukakos body is the body that carries the mind, will, and emotions of the man that have been corrupted. But the pneumatikos body is given by God upon those who rise from the grave, which is everybody. Remember what Jesus said when he walked the earth. It is the pneuma that gives life. Listen, the flesh profits nothing. That's what he said. Now, people will disagree with that. Oh, the flesh is good and God gave us his flesh. He said the flesh profits nothing. Think about it. When you die, that's what's going in the darn grave. That's what's going to corrode and mold and fall apart. That's going to blow in the wind. That's going away. It profits nothing, right? But it's the spirit. He says, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. See that? Do you see the connection between things? God breathed life. You want to be spiritually regenerated. You want to have a spiritual body so you have that heavenly life. That's what the goal is. So in the resurrection, in addition to all we've already talked about, the body buried is raised a spiritual body, not a material one, as the Catholics and the Mormons and the Orthodox claim, and then they come up with all the rules that you can't get cremated and shouldn't be buried at sea, you should have a respectful funeral because your body, you know, all that stuff. All right. Just as the word sukkakos represents a body passed on to us by Adam, the pneumatikos, the pneumaticon body, seems to represent the opposite. Still a body, but with a heavenly destination and heavenly operational appendages, whatever they are. Uh, I think at least we can suggest that that body will be not subject to the laws that material bodies are. I just don't see that. You may, but I just can't see it. And it's not sustained and nourished by the way a heavenly body is. Now people say, well, Jesus was on the shore with the apostles. He ate honeycomb and stuff. Try to understand Jesus' resurrection was a special, unique situation for them at that time. And, it, and, and I'm going to explain why it wasn't his resurrected body at the end of this. So um, the heavenly body will not have flesh. It will not have bone. It will not have blood. Jesus made it clear that flesh, bones, and blood cannot go to the heavenly kingdom. They are not part of that kingdom. So anyone who says, well, you're going to have your body, but it's going to be glorified. Uh, you can say, am I going to have bones? Well, that's part of your body that keeps your body shape and everything. No, no bones, no flesh, no blood. No material limitations. Um, and remember, Paul says in verse 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. So Paul says flesh and blood, Jesus says flesh and bone. So we put those together, none of it can. So again, in the least, the flesh that covers our natural body and the blood that courses through our veins will be absent from the resurrected body, not to mention all the other caveats Paul has made thus far. We know, however, that Jesus' resurrected body was flesh 
and uh, bone. We know it was, right? He, he, he said to, uh, to uh, Thomas, touch and see. He said to all the uh, 12 in the upper room, touch and see for a spirit has not flesh and bone as you see me have. Paul says at verse 50, flesh and bone cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So you tell me, which one's right? Was Jesus in his resurrected body when he showed up and showed? That was not his heavenly resurrected body. That was his earthly body to show that he rose from the grave. He would get a different body, okay? There's a natural body and there's a spiritual body. I don't know how else to prove that the bodies that we live in now are not going to be the bodies we possess and they're not going to be the things coming out of graves and tombs and oceans and everything else and dogs' stomachs uh, in the future. Dogs' stomachs? Uh, it's not possible in the face of all these statements for that to be right. I admit that the resurrected bodies could appear like a, a human being in, in the heavens. And, and, and maybe that's how we'll recognize each other. I don't know. They could, but they are not the bodies that are coming up out of the grave uh, with the flesh. Uh, so we've established those things. Let's read on. At verse 45, he says, And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening. That means a living spirit. Howbeit that was not first, which is spiritual, but that which is natural. And afterward, that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earth, such are they that are earthy. As is the heavenly, such are they that are also heaven. As is... And as we have borne the image of the earth, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Let me cover a couple of those verses before we wrap it up tonight. Back to verse 45, Paul says, And so it's written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. We covered that, Genesis 2, 7, right? The last Adam was made a living spirit. Paul cites a a written passage. He says, as it is written, and that's Genesis 2-7, and it's quoted exactly from the translation of the Septuagint that says, man was made a living soul. Paul adds the words, the first and Adam in that uh, to designate who he's talking about. And the meaning of the phrase was, he was endowed with life. He was endowed with life, okay? When Paul says the last Adam, the second Adam, Uh, the second man, uh, he is talking about uh, someone else. Jesus Christ is the usually, how almost all commentators uh, agree that that's who he's talking about. He's called the second Adam because he stands in contradistinction from the first Adam. Or in speaking about the resurrection, as we derive our natural, animal, corrupt, dishonorable, weak, dying body from the first Adam, we get our immortal, glorified body from the second Adam, uh, who said the flesh means nothing. The spirit is everything. So um, the first Adam stands as the head of everything, a living soul. Um, I'm not going to read this part. I'm not going to read that part either. But because Christ is the living, the quickening spirit, I think that's why he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
I think that's why John 1, 4 says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. When he told Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. When John says in John 3, 15, 16, for whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Um, so when it says spirit here, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last man was made a quickening spirit. It's really important because what it means in the Greek is dadzo. He was, he was made alive, the first Adam. The second Adam is diadzo apoeo, and it means he is a life-giving spirit. The first Adam was given life. The second Adam is a life-giving spirit. So now we're bringing into the idea of resurrection that those who have been given the life-giving spirit are brought back into the fullness of how the creation was. They are of the body. They are of the uh, soul. They are of the spirit. They are complete because Christ has given them life. Their resurrection appears to be very different from perhaps those who haven't uh, received the life-giving spirit of Jesus Christ in their life, which is another reason that we uh, share him. Okay, uh, one more thing. Paul says, however, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. First the imperfect in the creation of, of man, then the perfect. Um, this idea is carried out further, but I want to address it really quickly because relative to Mormonism, Mormonism teaches a mythical LDS plan of salvation that is proffered by missionaries all over the world. And that there's an LDS doctrine that teaches God created everything spiritually first. And then later he gave them all physical uh, bodies to live in. And according to Paul, that's not true. Paul actually teaches the opposite. He says, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural. And afterward, that which is spiritual. Meaning we're born as human beings in a natural, fallen, corrupt world after Adam. And when we receive Jesus, we are spiritually regenerated. The LDS teach, no, you start and they sing a song, I am a child of God. And he has sent me here. In a, in a spirit body that he created with his wives. And so to the Mormons, it's the reverse of what Paul teaches. They say they have their heavenly origins with God, having been created as spirits first, and they are to come down and get bodies second, the natural second. And so if you're ever talking to a Mormon missionary and they start talking about their plan of salvation, all you got to do is turn to 1 Corinthians 15 and look at verse 46, where Paul's clearly reverses the role on what Joseph Smith had twisted around. But not only that, Jesus says, um, I came from above, you came from beneath. That's what he makes it clear when he's talking to people. I am the only one who came from heaven, you came from beneath. That's another way that the LDS uh, flip it, because they say we were first created spiritually, we came from above, we came down and got bodies second with our elder brother Jesus Christ. Jesus made it clear, I'm the only one who's come from above. I'm the only one. The rest of you are from the dirt. 
you came from the dirt and you were given a mind, will, and emotion from Adam and that was corrupt and you need to be born again through me. So uh, what that leads to, and we'll wrap it up with this, is where the LDS teach that they are children of God naturally and that there's uh, this automatic fatherhood, son, daughter going on at birth uh, the scripture teaches completely differently. In John 1.11, it says, Jesus came to his own, his own received him not. But as many as received him, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then in Galatians 3.26, it says, for we are all the children of God by faith, in Christ Jesus, not by birth, by faith in Christ Jesus, we're made children of God. Second Corinthians one twenty two says, who has also sealed us and given the earnest of spirit in our hearts. So this counterfeit gospel, and I'm just touching on it because I used to be Mormon, is this counterfeit gospel, uh, what it creates in people, the LDS people, is a pride. And they think, Heavenly Father, God is my dad. He's been my dad since I was born. And they have this sort of, why would I need to be born again? Why, why do I need to call myself a sinner? I'm, I'm a child of God who's made some mistakes. And yeah, I can be forgiven through Jesus through the repentance process. But I'm a child of God. Where the Christian says, I'm of the dust. I've been a sinner. I need to be reconciled uh, to God by his son. I need that spirit to indwell me and, and make me a child of God by faith on his son, like the scripture says. And that with that comes a humility and a brokenness. So when people say Mormons aren't Christian, they're right when it comes to that sense, when it comes to that doctrine. Mormons think they are born children of God. Christians know they are born nothing but children of Adam, corrupt, reprobate, and needing new life that comes by faith on his son. So we're going to stop with that, but there's one thing I just want to reiterate, which I did before, and that is John the Apostle. He was alive and walking around when Jesus came out of the grave. He saw Jesus. He knew what he looked like, right? But later on in his life, he writes an epistle, and I covered this last week too, and I'm going to cover it next week at the end. He said to those who were there, beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. What John is saying there is, yeah, I saw Jesus rise from the grave, and I know he rose from the grave and overcame sin and death, but we don't know what we're going to be like. We don't know what the heavenly body is going to look like. That was Jesus' earthly body that we saw. So he says, we are the sons of God. We know that, but it doesn't appear yet what we're going to be like. But we know what we will be like when he appears. And we'll see him, and then we'll know we are like him. We will be like him. That's when we'll realize what we're going to be like in heaven, when he comes back and we see him. Do you see the difference between what came out of the grave with Jesus and then what John is talking about, of what everybody will see when he returns, that is the heavenly body that they will get, and it will be like him. 
So next week, we're going to do Resurrection Part 3 and wrap it up. And then after that, we're going to move on to some interesting topics. I may have a guest coming up week after next. I'm working with her right now. It's a rather long, convoluted story. But uh, if it happens, I think it will be of interest to you. Anything off-air questions? Check out checkmychurch.org. And make sure you check out Abduction in Plain Sight on Netflix. See you next week here on Heart of the Matter.